I unscrewed a guitar pickup off a guitar, this, uh, what they call them, humbucking pickups back in those days, and uh, took some rubber bands, and I, I did scratch the heck out of my violin. It was a horrible thing to do. So I took these rubber bands and, and strapped it underneath the strings and plugged it into an amp, and it must have sounded god-awful. But we went outside in front of the uh, grocery store by my house and played the, this some rock and roll when I was about four, 13, 14, and that's the day that I fell in love with a violin because I could make I could play what I wanted to play on that instrument. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and in this podcast, we spend time with violinist and composer David Balakrishnan, founding member of the Turtle Island String Quartet. Not only does David bring to this mysterious journey called life significant musical talent, but he maintains an abiding passion and reverence for those creative forces that lift our spirits and bring comfort to our souls. David lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I met with him at his home there in 2015 to record our conversation. My name's David Balakrishnan. I live in Albany, California, one of the many other Albanies of of America. And this one's very close to Berkeley, which is a more known city in the San Francisco Bay Area. I play the violin. I'll start off, that's my main identity, other than my name's David Balakrishnan. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, born and raised in Los Angeles. Moved up here in my early 20s. Like a lot of people my age, was very excited what was happening in this area of the world. Even that was around the early 70s, but still was a big attraction. And actually, another part of it was is there was a group that was up here I was very excited about. So the, the really the, the two pertinent parts of my childhood were, of course, my mother and my father uh, in terms of my musical experience. And uh, my father, you might tell from my last name, Bala Krishnan, you hear a little bit of Hari Krishna in there. So my mother and father were very unusual in the sense that they, my father came from South India. He was born and raised in a small village in South India. And while we know so many Indians are now here in this area working in the IT area, uh, uh, that my dad came over here much earlier than that in a time when there were so few people from India in America. And so he came over in 1947 on a, on a boat. When the when he was on the boat, they were declared independence in India. So he, he predates, he was there in the British days. And so uh, he was on a scholarship from India to study film music. And he came here and found very quickly that the film sound industry, because he's mostly a mathematician, was the film sound industry was dominated by the guilds in the, and that he wasn't going to get much chance to do much in that area. So he quickly switched to electrical engineering and uh, is very successful at that his whole life. And he met my mother at USC and they fell in love. Uh, uh, and it was just a disaster for both sets of the families. So my father's, you have to imagine, 1950 in rural South India. To them, American women were, were they thought of them as all like Marilyn Monroe. And so the, the idea was is that um, 
It was com- for him to be marrying an American woman would be completely cutting off all his ties with his family because they could not tolerate. My mother's side equally horrified. To them, my mother's family felt that they were marrying a black man because, in, in, as far as they were concerned, there was no differentiation. So it was a time when prejudice was not so much. I don't consider them prejudiced in the way that they were violent about it, but in their minds, their daughter was, was to do this. So they, these two people were very idealistic and forward-thinking in the uh, interracial marriage of this way. So we were all named uh, combination Indian-American names. So my name is Hari David Balakrishnan. There's an Indian name called Hari Dave. So um, Hari David is an anglicized form of an Indian name, and all the rest of my brothers and my sister have the same kind of quality. And so this kind of uh, dual bipolar personality has kind of been part of my whole life uh, and continues. I'm completely American in that I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and my mother totally dominated how I was raised. So I don't speak Indian language. I didn't study Indian music. I'm completely American in that way. However, another part of what happened for me was being a, a kid in the 60s was that was just when Indian music was starting to make its way into American culture. And I was, of course, following my mother's side of things. She was a violinist and a pianist, and she had me um, learn to play the violin when I was a kid, about nine years old. And then also my dad had these strange records by, made by this guy named Ravi Shankar. This is before the Beatles kind of knew about it. You know, this is, and there was a, one record I really remember very well, which I was because I was already playing the violin, was made by um, Ravi Shankar with the great violinist Yehudi Menuhin who I think of as really the Yo-Yo Ma of his times. He was so forward-thinking. He was playing with Stefan Grappelli. He was playing with Ravi Shankar. And he was a very open-minded kind of person. And so that really affected me, hearing that, that you could have violin. You know, I didn't think about it as a kid, but it just it, it caught me. So nonetheless, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid growing up in the 60s, and I'm playing the violin because my parents are thinking I should. And it's fine and everything. What really turned me to be a musician in the end was a cultural experience called rock and roll. Being in my in middle school and and starting to fall in love with the the rock music that I was hearing, it was much more important to me. I, I wanted to fit in. Playing the violin was not an easy way to fit in and be cool. It was more regarded as kind of a strange, geeky thing to do. But I, I found early on, as I started playing guitar and learning how to... This is another part. I started improvising. So playing the guitar started teaching me these jazz uh, blues phrases on uh, that I could see uh, without even thinking that I could find a way to play on the guitar. And the big thing that happened to me when I was in about eighth grade was I realized this could be done on the violin. And I was a much better violinist than a guitarist. And it was simply a matter of using the bow, which is like you can create the sound of a, of a, a rock guitar. Because if you think what a rock guitar player does, he plays a note and he sustains it by using amplification, the way a bow makes the string uh, note on the violin sustain. And so it's just a matter of, of changing how you vibrate. And, and the sound in my ears was more like Jimi Hendrix than Pavarotti. So that, that, that was a, I didn't think much about it, but what I noticed as soon as I started playing rock and roll on the violin, girls kind of paid attention to me all of a sudden. People were looking. At, and believe it or not, this continued. I mean, in the sense that for the rest of my life, when I, I, I was not especially gifted in the classical arena because classical music 
You really have to discipline yourself to play a certain, it's like preparing a speech where it has to be really perfected to be played one way. And I didn't have the, the, the personality for that. I was much more restless soul and much more attracted to the more freer ideas of a more of an individual voice. So I would always kind of never get very far in my classical playing. Um, I would keep trying because it was uh, something that I was drawn to, I think, because to learn the instrument. But Nonetheless, when I would play rock and later jazz, there was a group called the uh, uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra that came out with a violinist named Jerry Goodman. And that's where I started seeing this adult part of me started hearing the more sophistication of that music because it was called uh, what's called jazz rock or fusion in the early 1970s. That was a very big uh, period for a change in jazz. And, and then as being 18-year-old now, I could start hearing there was more to it than just you know, shaking my long hair around and making a loud noise. And as as I got older, I continued to improv- get more interested in more uh, developed improvising styles. I also went to youth college at UCLA and continued my classical violin studies, but also started studying composition. Once again, I found my, my nature was more suited for that. My father's a mathematician. I'm oriented towards pattern thinking, and I like to create and uh, I don't so much like to practice how to hold my elbow a certain way five hours a day, which is more of the classical. Yeah, I shouldn't be so hard on classical, but there's a certain point of it is <laughs> you really focus on the physical production, like an athlete focuses on, like a gymnast focuses on making a triple somersault. It's that kind of idea versus the person who's going to design the triple somersault, you know, this idea. <laughs> so so this, this gets me into college years. From there, after I graduated college, I uh, discovered a group called the David Grisman Quintet, and that's where things really changed for me. You know, what happens with me is when I talk about my life, I'm aware that it has so many different streams, and yet I'm aware I want to try to create a context for how it all fits. And so I have a hard time leaving things out. That's kind of what happened. People say I'm a little too encyclopedic sometimes, so I'll try to cut down on some of that. Let us listen now to David perform with the Turtle Island String Quartet, a portion of a piece he wrote titled Confetti Man, a composition that was later nominated for a Grammy Award. Thank you. 
when I, I think of the way of making music from the classical standpoint and the way of making music from the improvising American music, the way I think of American music standpoint, which is this idea of, of, of jazz that came from Africa and ended up in so many different facets of American music. The main thing is, is that there's this rhythmic phrasing quality that's so different. And then the really important thing is you don't use your eyes to play in the sense that a classical musician uses his eyes to read music, to transfer, to give him the notes to play, period. And all he's going to do is read the music or memorize the music. He's not going to change one pitch of a Beethoven sonata. Not going to happen. Now, you know as a fiddler, if you're playing a fiddle tune, you have a lot of latitude. You can play a wrong note and play it twice and say, I meant that, and just be fine. And we all do that mm-hmm. as improvisers. So th- there's discipline there, but it's a different type. And I was more drawn to that kind of, 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 of approach very early on intuitively. But as I got older, as I realized there was more to it than that, and I kept coming across these examples of amazing genius that I didn't realize was there. Like... For instance, coming across the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Up to that point, I was used to thinking of great guitar band like being like Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, and these pure blues rock guitar players. But John McLaughlin, he was playing in a way that he was bringing in jazz, which I had no idea really what it was. I thought of it as an old man's music with kind of something I couldn't relate to. But then he was playing really loud, and with all the rock and roll manifestation of, of craziness, but the language, my mathematical adult brain said, what is that? And just would listen to him just mouth dropping. The second thing that really trapped me with that was the violin player. Here was a real rock violin player, Jerry Goodman, just blew so many of my generation away. There's many people who talk about that that he played rock violin and he had really long hair and he was just amazing. And then the third thing is the fact that Mahavishnu Orchestra and John McLaughlin was influenced by Indian music, the music of my father. So I, the Beatles, of course, were there when I was younger. And I knew my friends were all of a sudden noticing my dad's records. And I kind of liked that they were somehow all of a sudden my dad is interesting on some weird level. Mostly they made fun of my name. But nonetheless, there were some interests there. But when Mahavishnu Orchestra came out, all of a sudden there was this whole huge interest in not just the cultural side, but you could kind of see the music, jazz, rock side started to, to join. And it was my door into Indian music from the Western side with this weird sense of it already being mine through my heritage. Very quirky. Very quirky. I'm finding this very interesting, too, this idea that uh, certain music traditions come out of the outsider, the person who's on the outside. And the person on the inside who has, who can be part of the power structure, whether it's a cultural or financial power structure, has to learn the rules, and as long as they fit in and play by the rules... They're guaranteed a place. Yeah. But if you're the outsider, you have to be adaptable. 
Yeah. You have to learn to adapt because you're not going to get those opportunities. Mm-hmm. And musically, I can see the parallel between somebody saying, I'm going to learn classical music the way it's supposed to be played. That way I know I'm going to be in the club. Everything's yeah. going to be fine. Versus these people, whether it's gypsy, whether it's black, whether it's Indian, these outsiders in the American experience who seem to be much more comfortable with adaptation. No, that's true. And it doesn't get trapped. The, the It's tempting to find safety. We're all looking for a safe place to stand, all as human beings. So in music, you can first maybe look at fitting in as a classical musician, or in these days, you could fit in in any way. You know, you can, there's so many now. Um, you can be a, of course, you can go to school as a jazz musician, no problem. It's, it's pretty much the same as classical music in the way it's taught. And some degree, you're starting to say the, see the same thing in fiddle music, aren't you? I mean, with uh, the camps they have and the young players are, are turning... I, I want to just say really quickly what's really amazing to me, somebody who's been doing this for years, is see young players coming out, playing fiddle without classical background, and being amazing musicians and being recognized as amazing musicians on long and equal to the classical musicians. This was not the case when I was coming up. And that's a sea change, different viewpoint of the violin to, in my mind than it was. And it snuck up on us over years and years. People like Mark O'Connor, Daryl Anger, Matt Glazer, some of my my colleagues who... And, and I consider my group, the Turtle Island Quartet, as part of that, having opened doors for this to happen. And it's pretty exciting to see that this there is this general opening of the door that you can be a great violinist without studying Mozart and Haydn in the classical tradition. Why not? Uh, and being just as good technically. So going back to your mom. Yes. What was her background? Yes. Yeah, so, so my mother's uh, American from way back, you know, there that has one of these names, Moulton, where the family name goes back to the Mayflower and all this. And it has one of these books and all this. So, you know, I think they go back to 1066 for their name. Uh, it's one of those things that, that very, very, very American, very um, straight ahead that way. And uh, and yet she was also uh, obviously very almost radical liberal in a certain way. Not that she was going to go set fires to buildings, but more that she was very she was worked as a, she was a very smart woman. She was uh, somebody who had the highest GPA in, in grad school at USC for a woman at the time. And so my father and my mother were very brilliant people. And my mother, by, by far, was more Western and more, uh, and definitely raised us as Westerners. And, and gave me the love of music, that she just loved music. In fact, one of my nightmares was her, I was 16, and she took up the cello, and she started playing cello really badly, and it was really annoying. She would play string quartets with my French teacher, and it would just horrify me. But she was so passionate about it. She passed away in 1987, and so I, you know, that's a loss for me. But, but in the sense that uh, I remember her as somebody who was filled with joy playing music. My father's not a musician, but he loves music, and he he loved the music from India, obviously. And so the two of them, both in their way, neither one of them wanted me to be a musician. That's pretty common. And you were speaking earlier about this idea of outsider and all these things. Now, my dad came from India in the early 50s. He's here. And, of course, to be to fit in at all is very difficult. And in the, in the Indian culture, to be a musician is just completely thought of as nothing that is further allowed from a good Brahmin son than to be a musician. You just don't do it. So I actually went to college as a chemistry major. And for three years, somehow avoided my father finding out 
and took all music classes. Nobody caught me until finally I was caught, and uh, it was too late. And my dad was just, oh, you know, he's just really. But, you know, at a certain point, they realized it's too late. The arrow has been shot. So I was supposed to be a scientist or a mathematician. That's really what I was. My dad totally wanted to be like him. Typical, I'm the firstborn son. You should be like your father. That's it. So take me to the day you performed for your father for the first time. Tell me where it was. Oh, you know, he likes to tease me and tell me how he wouldn't come home at night because I was so horrible when I was a kid. But I would say it would be after college, really, when, and it was probably in the mid-early 80s when Turtle Island was just starting. We played in Los Angeles, and uh, it was at Watson Hall in, in, in Los Angeles, and my dad came to the concert, and he talked to Daryl Anger, who was also in the group at the time. And it was, Daryl told me later, it was really sweet. He, he, I, I was so unlike my dad. He went up to Daryl and said, I want to thank you for having helped my son develop to, to be such a great musician and giving him a chance to uh, be part. Because Daryl was really a big part uh, in my life as somebody I both admired and became a great close friend of. And I think he's just a genius in what he, well, that's a bad word, but he's, virtuoso of what he does and and more than anything he developed a way of playing the instrument that I see so many people doing but for my father to say that the light went on he does approve of me because he won't he still he's 92 he still says when am I going to get I'm 60 when are you going to really get a job you know still saying that you know he'll go to his grave that way but nonetheless I know truthfully that he's very proud of me so tell me about the first really the first violin that came into your hands that woke you up to the instrument having a role in all this. That would be uh, the first time the violin became meaningful for me was when I was about 13 or 14. I was already playing rock and roll and playing these blues licks on the guitar. And I was playing the violin. Of course, this is my, the instrument my mom gave me this instrument. She bought it for me. So what happened was I started uh, finding out early on that I could play these blues licks on the violin. And then also, I unscrewed a guitar pickup off a guitar, this, uh, what they call them, humbucking pickups back in those days, and uh, took some rubber bands, and I, I did scratch the heck out of my violin. It was a horrible thing to do. So I took these rubber bands and, and strapped it underneath the strings and plugged it into an amp, and it must have sounded god-awful. But we went outside in front of the uh, grocery store by my house and played the, this, some rock and roll when I was about four, 13, 14, and that's the day that I fell in love with a violin because I could, make, I could play what I wanted to play on that instrument. And what was the instrument? Uh, the violin, I still have it. It's not a known-name instrument. It has a safe place in my—I still play it. Because what I use it for now is uh, something that's called a baritone violin, which is a violin uh, with strings that are tuned an octave low. Daryl plays one of these, and I got it from him. It's a it's a way for a violinist to to play below the viola without playing a viola. You don't change your fingerings, and so you can play the same licks, but they just sound an octave low. It doesn't work all that well. There, I like to say there's a reason that the viola is bigger than the violin, other than it burns longer. That's my bad joke. But but the point is, is the reason it's bigger is so the bigger box gets a bigger sound. So when you put strings an octave lower on a violin, it has a, a very soft sound. But because we use a small amount of amplification, we can still use it in the quartet. And Daryl's been using it with uh, the various groups he's been playing with for so long, and uh, and it's a wonderful sound. So that it just happens that that violin that I got when I was a kid makes a perfect 
baritone violin. So it's still it's still being sounded in my life, which is very nice. I don't play it, you know. I now have a very nice modern Italian violin for most of my playing. So, tell me how you got this violin you play now. The modern violin, um, typical nightmarish, fearful story. Uh, uh, I inherited some money. My grandfather passed away, and, and I inherited some money, and so I went to New York to try to find a violin, and ended up walking into the, the shop of a guy named Rene Morel. And when I tell that name to him, I think he's. I think there. You know, I I could be a little careful because it's. I think there might still be a shop that his son's running, but they're just kind of known to be. You got to be really watch your toes. You got to watch yourself. You can you can make a big mistake, and they won't protect you from making your big mistake. So. Nonetheless, I fell in love with this violin made by Ansaldo Poggi. Uh, he's a very fine, respected uh, modern Italian maker, uh, which means he was making violins. This violin was made in 1941. And the problem with this instrument from a value standpoint that really meant that I had to be careful was is it had cracks in the top. And very, this is a problem with violin value. Uh, violin makers make these instruments and they love... They, they're beautiful sounding and they it's their love, but their value is affected by all these arcane, non-musical aspects. So here's this violin that I can tell right away. This is the sound I want. I found my violin. I found my voice. But I got to pay this amount of money for it. And there's no real sense that that amount of money is really what I should be paying. Very hard to find and very risky. So luckily for me, I... Uh, my my bandmates agreed this is a really great sounding violin and to this this is back in 96 and to this day people that i play with always say that's a really i get a a very a nice feeling that people really like the sound of my violin which is good because it'll always be hard to know what it's really worth in the marketplace and so i'll i'll worry my children can worry about that this is going to be staying in my hands for for my lifetime so I think this is so much the issue I'm finding as I do this uh, radio series yeah. of this assigned value has yeah. always fascinated me. Uh, and when you bring that idea of a sort of a marketplace assigned value into something as related to the soul as music yeah. and the arts, yeah. you have this dissidence, this, this disconnect, and it causes all kinds of people problems. So how did the transaction with the shop owner go? That Did you point out cracks and hopefully get him to it's understand? so strange how that went down. <laughs> so there was a friend here in town that I trusted a lot, who was a, a local a person who also sold instruments. And, and I bought a couple of bows from him, which was a good way for me to get help with his violin. And he kind of coached me through the whole process. And so by the time I bought that violin, Rene Morel was older. He was kind of at the end of his career. And I was dealing with more his son. And, and I had taken the violin home. And, and I live here in the Bay Area. And so I was talking. I, I had to talk to them on the phone to negotiate the price. And they wanted, um, you know, like 20000 more than I wanted to pay. It's still five figures. But they wanted more than I wanted to pay. So I was instructed by my friend to say this one amount. And then it was so strange because I said the amount and then I heard the, the older man say a different amount. He says, so you're saying this amount, which was 10000 less than I said. And I hear this quick rustling <laughs> in the background. And so, and so I kind of kicked myself. Oh, I probably could have said 10000 less, but it was too late. And so it was very scary to do that. 
you know, this is so long ago. And you know, if you ever buy a house, once you buy a house and you love to live in it, it doesn't matter anymore. It's your house. It's like a violin. It's my house. It's my violin. It's my house. And so its value fades in importance. Um, but back then, it was just a really hard thing to go through. And uh, it's I, I feel for people who have to make this choice. It's difficult. It's a lot of money. It matters a lot. And uh, it, sh- it would be better if it wasn't quite so driven by strange market forces, violins in general, I think. To better appreciate David's gifts as a composer, let us listen to him perform a portion of the movement titled Snakes and Ladders from his composition Mara's Garden of False Delights. David is accompanied by members of the Turtle Island String Quartet and the Ying String Quartet from their music CD, 4x4. Thank you. 
I want to talk a little bit more as, as discovering bluegrass and fiddle music because I quickly learned listening to McLaughlin and, and the Mahavishnu Orchestra about how you could play more complicated, sophisticated musical lines. I was studying composition in college, discovering more about structure and harmony and it's a completely other way of looking at how music could be very sophisticated. I had no idea that fiddle music could be sophisticated. And so this the light went on for me for that when I first heard this 11-year-old kid, Stuart Duncan, playing at a fiddle contest in Los Angeles. And I decided I'd enter this fiddle contest just as a lark. And I went up there and, like an idiot, play the Orange Blossom special. I found out later it was the worst thing to do. And then after me, this kid, this 11-year-old kid went up there and I had one of those experiences that's always happened. I heard him play and I... I saw the craft and skill of what he was doing. It, it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. What is that? And right after that, I got introduced to the music of David Grisman Quartet and uh, Tony Rice on guitar, and, and my who's to become one of my main friends and collaborators, Daryl Anger on violin. And so that's where I kind of, the Indian music was also part of what I did from my father being Indian started listening to more of that. So my, I think of, the, for me, musically, the four food groups, which is classical music, jazz, fiddle music, and American folk music, and Indian music. Those are my four influences. And that's who makes me who I am. That's If you listen to my music, all these years later, those four streams have been the, the way that I make an identity for myself as a musician. Tell me about the first time you played for... Daryl and, and David Grisman, and was an auditioner. You were just meeting them. It was a, a social setting. How nervous were you? The very first time, and they told me, I would go s- see them play in up in Santa Rosa, and they, they told me later, they because I was studying jazz at uh, the local junior college. This is after I already had a degree, and I was studying like Coltrane and Charlie Parker, more legit jazz. And uh, so I would go in with my music notebook paper and be in the afternoon watching their sound check because I was a junkie for what they were doing, but I was totally shy. I would never think to go talk to them. So they told me later that they saw me writing notes and they were very paranoid. Like, what is he doing over there? What's he writing on on his paper that made them all nervous? I had no idea. So later, I finally got the nerve to go up to Daryl and ask him for a lesson. And uh, so he said, come on over. And of course, at this point, I'm thinking, he's a rock star. He's famous. He's got to be rich because he's doing music with David Grisman and so he invites me to his house, and it turns out to be this tiny little house in the middle of Oakland in this rather questionable area. And I'm going, what? This is Daryl's <laughs> house? And so nonetheless, I go in, and, and, and Daryl turns out to be this such a sweet guy. And we we immediately hit it off. I think we spent like something like eight or nine hours together that first day. He was just so, we found, both of us found we had something to offer each other. I didn't realize that what I had to offer Daryl was just the tradition. I, what I assumed that Daryl would already know everything I knew, but it turns out that Daryl was somebody who was somewhat self-taught, a self-made musician who was who come up with his own way of doing things that was so compelling to me and so many other players, not just me. In my uh, experience as a musician, he saw that I knew uh, more about the, the traditional aspects, not so much the classical playing as much as the composition and the jazz and the language, the vocabulary part. And he, he wanted more of that. And so, and then we both loved the same things and then we became fast friends and we would do all sorts of projects, crazy projects together over the years. And he was a co-founder of the Turtle Island String Quartet. So big part of my life. Tell me, just the founding, the idea to found the Turtle Island. That's kind of a complicated story, the founding of the group, but it was a matter, 
uh, that it had to happen. There had to be a string quartet where all four musicians were equally grounded in jazz and, and classical music and, and uh, folk styles of music and some uh, world music, which is the idea behind Turtle Island. And it's no small thing to have, uh, you know, uh, violinists are more common, violists and cellists not so much. And so the first thing I started doing was after I had been around Daryl for a while, I realized I didn't have my own voice, and, and I had been studying composition, and so I started writing string quartet music for a string quartet that didn't exist, by, and I would do that by playing all the four parts myself, somehow uh, imitating the cello was almost impossible, but I had that baritone violin, right? So I could, and I was bringing the approach of classical composition, jazz, harmony, Indian music phrasing, and, and fiddle, folk, shuffle bow, and chop, the way that I, I'd been playing with Daryl and Dave Grisman. And then what happened was because Daryl was more known than I was by far. And so people were attracted to the Bay Area because of Daryl. And Mark Summer, this cellist in, in Winnipeg, Canada, who was in the orchestra there, was very disenchanted with that. And he came, he just came with his family out to San Francisco and plopped down and said, world, tell me what to do. And so I said, I'll tell you what to do. I hear what you can do. Let's do this string quartet. And Daryl was really into the idea of it. And then we just drafted another player to play viola. That was going to be the big exploding viola chair the the viola has been one of the hardest parts to keep going because that's another long story but nonetheless that's where the group was founded with that idea and i had already written all this music plus i put together these jazz arrangements for us to do more improvising and right away this was in 1985 it was clear that this was going to be something that would have a lot of power in the music world so the passion of my life for turtle island string quartet for me is to be in the composing side because the thing about composing is is that in the Western culture, the composer is is separate from the performer. The, the performers write, play everything the composer writes, and they don't improvise, they don't change any of it. So they're just more like the voice of the composer. But the idea behind the music that I'm making, that's part of what Turtle Island is built on, is that the performers improvise. The performers have their own individual voice. So as a composer, my way of making music in that sense is that I am not so much trying to to script them to what they, they're going to play as much as to launch them to say their own story in the, in the context of my story, which means that they're free to change the notes, to work with the phrasing, to improvise, as long as they're aware and cognizant of theirs to try to make a point beyond the individual showing off outside of the context of the larger picture. This is a political nightmare in some levels because you got strong personalities. People who are attracted to playing a group like Turtle Island are rebels. There are players who, in their childhood, started improvising and playing jazz and rock and roll, and they want to play their own thing. And so, as a composer, you have to be very careful. In early days, I was young and hot-headed, and I would get in these horrible battles because I didn't understand that. And over the years, I've learned more that truly implicated in the very bedrock of what I was doing was the the idea that the players were had to be free to that the music wasn't mine; it was ours so to speak. And yet, I want there to be my voice. It's a paradox. And and so, so much of what I do, I wouldn't want to hear it played by another string quartet, really. I certainly write music and hope other players play it, but the way I want to hear it demands that the players be really skilled at these phrasing styles that they're not taught in the in the tradition of the classical violin technique. And so, I really am aware that... that uh, like Duke Ellington would talk about. He would talk about writing for specific players. That's kind of more how I write. I write for myself. I use my violin to write. It's my singing voice. 
So pretty much everything I write comes from the violin and the physical experience of playing the violin. However, you hear my music, it's not, it's not idiomatic in the sense it's not driven by the violin. The language is very much still in the tradition of the architecture of the classical composer, uh, which means it's, it's not just fiddle music given a little bit more uh, groove. It's, 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 it's got more of the structure. You'll recognize the classical element of it, is for, for sure. That's what I love to do. I love to find the, the joining points, the places where you didn't realize that, that uh, Indian music had a mode that was the same mode used in a bluegrass tune where the guy kills his wife, throws his wife's body in the river, and it floats down, and, and, then, and he goes to jail. The same mode that is used to play that style is used to play a certain mode in India where it's about the idea of death and resurrection and, and renunciation of your life. And all it is how you play the, whether you play the C to the C sharp going up, or down, and it's just the slightest implication, and you give two different pictures of the same, uh, using the same scale. And I love looking for ways of joining those various unassociated aspects of music. It's my passion. And if I understand, a friend of mine, in fact, used to play Appalachian music back, way yeah. back when I was first learning in central West Virginia. He went off to school to study Indian music. And to us, this was bizarre. We didn't know anything yeah. about Indian music. And he, you yeah. know, he was a European descendant type kid. But he went off. But he came back later and we talked. And he said there were certain ragas that they would play but only at certain times of the day. So I love this idea yeah. of time. And um, in older times, before they had mechanical clocks, they used to have these large, uh, very long incense sticks that had different aromas. Oh. So depending on what time of day, as it burned all day, you would oh. know if it was sandalwood, it was near lunchtime. Yeah. And I love that idea. Amazing. Is that from, from India or is that from, from India? Yeah. That's cool. I didn't know about that. That's that, awesome. That's cool. So yeah. this idea of what's the element of time? Yeah. In, in this whole process? How do you think about it? Do you compose at certain times a day differently than at other times? I love that question. And I, I think for myself that uh, I'm more Western in the sense and I'm not as in touch with time the way that my Indian ancestors were in that way. And then my, from my father's side musically. And, and I noticed this because I play Indian music with a group of Indian musicians here in, in the Bay Area. I go to a Hindu temple, actually, and I play music with them. And they love to have me play when they need a lot of energy, which is more evening raga, more like, you know, when you want to have a lot of joyous playing, which is called bhajan stuff. And But when they want more morning and early, they, they're not so much because I'm kind of a high energy guy and I tend to have a, you can even hear the way I talk there's a lot of <laughs> more of that kind of guy and so it's really, it's not my nature to play more slowly you know it's a, so I find it as a composer because you have to but then I can spend more time over a period of weeks months to do that but as a player I have a tendency to lean towards the more excitable Kind of music, um, and then it's and evocative at the same time. Um, so, uh, if you want to be awake at three a.m., I'm your guy, basically. Last question: We should go. Anything else? Any last reflections on the violin itself as an instrument? I want to say personally for me that the violin is a it still remains a difficult instrument to play. It, it's really 
challenging to play in tune, to get a good sound, and it, it's it's and at the same time, it just gives me a feeling that I can say what I really feel. Ah, beyond that, like it's it's a part of my body. Like um, the violin sits between my chin and my shoulder, and I I feel how it like resonates my bones, and uh, and then it's this combination of great difficulty and great joy that it really does speak in a way you you can say something that you really feel so deeply that you could I can't say in words that it, it, but it's no it just doesn't do it you have to really my whole life uh, it's been a love hate kind of thing because it's just it's, it's so easy to to lose your way on the violin and so many times every concert I play I will tell you I lose my way I I will say that it's it's partly because I'm improvising, partly because it's the nature of the violin that you can never play perfect. Although I still hear, I lust after what classical violinists can do. If I would have a another lifetime and be the classical violinist I never was, I would love to turn a switch and have that. I got this life. It's a good one, and I'm happy with it. But I do look at the other side and wonder, what if? Nah, forget it. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org.